welcome to the second episode of the Mr. Opinionated Podcast. Joining us this week is Dr. Amy Davis, Professor of Film Studies at the University of Hull, here to talk to us all about all things animation. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Hope you enjoyed our first episode last time with Jonathan Parry. Joining us this time out is, as I mentioned in the intro, Dr. Amy Davis, lecturer and professor of film studies at the University of Hull, where I am currently a student. Dr. Amy is actually one of my lecturers who has kindly agreed to join me on the podcast to talk to us about animation. Um, I'm just here before our guest comes on to remind you of where to find all of my written reviews. They're to be found at mrapinionatedweb.com. And since I last spoke to you all on the podcast, I have written five new reviews, including The Lego Movie 2, Cold Pursuit, and most recently, The Aftermath, which went up, as you're listening to this on the Monday, it went up the previous Thursday. So all of those are there for you to enjoy at mrapinionatedweb.com, alongside this podcast once it's finished, and the first episode of the podcast, both available both on the Mr. Opinionated website and on all good podcast providers. With that being said, I'm going to hand it over to my present self with Dr. Amy Davis. So without further ado, take it away, myself. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Mr. Opinionated podcast. This time joined by my guest, Dr. Amy Davis. Hi. hi. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Um, So... Do you want to introduce yourself, give us a brief rundown of who you are, what you've done? <laughs> right, well, so Amy Davis, Dr. Amy Davis, and I am a lecturer in film studies at the University of Hull. I teach um, various modules and or have in the past taught various modules. Uh, the current ones are um, History of Hollywood Cinema, Screening Genders, which is about feminist film theory and that sort of thing. Um, American Animation History and Disney Studies. Uh, in the past, I've also taught History of Hollywood Horror and uh, a module on, ad- on um, adaptation where we looked at every version ever made of Pride and Prejudice. Oh, really? That sounds like an interesting <laughs> module. It was. <laughs> um, so, I've kind of crossed paths with Dr. Davis in the last few months. She's uh, my... American Animation Studies lecturer at the university. She's uh, very kindly agreed to come on and talk to us about animation. Would you say that animation was kind of your area of expertise within films, film studies? Absolutely, yeah, particularly American animation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't specialise at all in, in sort of Japanese anime. I know bits about British animation just from living here and yeah. all. Um, but I've never really studied European animation. I'm aware of things. I've done a little bit about, very, very little bit about Polish animation, but I would never even begin to pretend I know about it. Yeah. Um, my, my area is absolutely focused on American animation. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the, the most fruitful area of animation, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, not least the way uh, Hollywood has come to sort of dominate international film yeah. generally um, over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's certainly yeah. the most widely seen, most widely distributed. Yeah, especially Disney, which we'll talk yeah. talk in depth on yeah. later. Um, I like to usually start my podcast with a rundown of uh, a newer film that I've just seen and an okay. older film. And I thought I'd focus on two animated films, seeing as that was our topic of discussion. Okay. I saw The Lego Movie 2 a few weeks ago. Have you seen any of the Lego films? I've seen the first one. Seen I haven't had a chance one. to see the second one. Yeah. Um, I saw that and Lego Batman movie was on my top ten, <laughs> the top ten films of the year, the year it came out. Yeah, the Le- I was yeah. quite pleasantly surprised by the Lego movie. Yeah. I, I, it looked... You know, too quirky to, but it actually the way it developed, I thought was so clever, and it was one of those, you know, that when when it turned out to be a, a child, yeah, playing Legos, it was like, well, of course, because every the way that the characters spoke fit that that yeah. perfect. Well, thing. it's kind of a representation of the imagination, isn't it? Because mm. the the entire film is kind of what's been imagined in the child's head, and yeah. and the thing with Legos is they've got so many franchises under their umbrella that anything is possible within Lego and that's why in the yeah. Batman film you had Batman fighting Sauron and the Daleks and 
<laughs> but uh, the Lego Movie Two very much uh, starts where the first Lego Movie finishes, okay. introduces Duplo to the Lego films, and kind of Lego products for the younger children. Mm-hmm. And um, there ends up being quite a nice twist at the end, which I won't spoil. The full review is on my website. And uh, the older one I want to talk about is one that's quite overlooked. Um, in recent weeks, we were talking in class about um, Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the big Warner Brothers films from my generation was Space Jam. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about Space Jam. I'm going to talk about what was my favourite animated film as a kid, which was Looney Tunes back in action. Right. Have you seen? Have you seen I it? have seen parts of it a very, very long time ago. I, I'm, I am a huge Looney Tunes fan, but... The shorts are my first love. Yeah. I've never really found myself engaging much with the films, in all honesty. I agree. I, I used to watch the kind of compilation Looney Tunes shorts on Cartoon Network when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what drew me to the back-in-action film. I think it's actually aged slightly better than Space Jam. Space Jam hasn't mm-hmm. aged particularly well when you rewatch it with modern eyes. Uh, but back-in-action is... Which is the sequel to Space Jam, isn't um, it? I'm not sure if it's a direct sequel. There are references within it to Space Jam. Mm. But uh, there was also a Marvin the Martian film touted after Back in Action was released that never really got the right idea. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, Yeah, I'd forgotten until you mentioned it. But yeah, and Mm. I would have loved... I love Marvin Martian. Yeah. But um, no, he he didn't get the love. No. (laughs) There's there's quite a lot of characters like that that were peripheral. I I really liked um, Foghorn Lickhorn. Oh, yeah. Favorite Looney Tunes characters. <laughs> I, I think it's just the way he talks so that makes me laugh. Yeah, well, and, and just he—he's so—he's so congenial. No matter what happens, you know, even though the most terrible things happen yeah. to him, and I still quote repeatedly um, a quote of his from the end of one cartoon where he's—he's he's trying to court this this woman or this lady chicken, you mm. know, and her her little son doesn't want him to have anything to do with her and keeps, you know. Left Foghorn keeps getting more and more beaten and battered and bruised until finally he's just he's practically mummified with both his wings and casts his legs and casts and the the female chicken says you know chicken dog chickens are female um, says you know I thought you said you needed my love to keep you warm and his response is uh, Madam I say Madam I've got my bandages to keep me warm <laughs> and it's like you know it, it's the sort of quintessential yeah. you know he's just given up. <laughs> so from those we have um, the first kind of conversation topic I've, I wanted to bring up is um, what attracted you personally to animation was there any particular film when you were a, a child or what the... not yeah, not that I know not that I can think of not any one specific film or one specific studio but I did grow up watching lots of animation I mean we're talking about just what was on either broadcast television or, or in the cinemas, because I'm, mm. I'm too old to have had a VCR as a very young child. It was the early 70s, mid-70s. Um, but, um, you know, there were, there were constantly cartoons on television. Um, and some might argue, although I would slightly, slightly argue against this, that in some ways this is a sort of golden age for, for television animation. Um... So I grew up watching lots of you know stuff made for TV, mm-hmm. um, particularly the Hanna Barbera, which I've never actually been a big fan of. Oh, really? Um, it's fine for those who like it, but it you know stuff that people particularly fondly remember, like Scooby Doo. I just never. No, and I I'm love sorry. horror, and I think that's why because I've always loved horror, and yeah. Scooby Doo was always you know the person in the mask who was obviously yeah the person in the I, mask. I, I think I, I went off Scooby Doo <clears throat> as a kid because it. Always seems to be the same formula. Yeah, it was always. always somebody under a mask. Which that is, and we will talk about that on the module in yeah. a couple of weeks. Um, Hanna Barbera, over their their TV career from 1957 on, um, produced 138 different series. Yeah. With obviously multiple episodes per series. Some more successful, obviously some far less successful series but um they did become incredibly formulaic because they had to produce a great deal of animation very very quickly it was, it was a deal of quantity yeah. over quality absolutely almost. was and it it you know i mean it's often referred to as cookie cutter animation mm-hmm. for that reason but i mean also they did show when i was a kid you know particularly all the old looney tunes 
the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, which is the only Hanna-Barbera I really do adore. Um, the, the old um, Tex Avery cartoons, the, the old Disney cartoons, a lot of the old, uh, which is a studio we haven't really talked about on the, on the module, the UPA, mm-hmm. and um, some of those. And I just grew up watching and loving lots and lots of these other things as well. Um, but also my mother is a big animation fan, mm. big movie fan. And so whenever any of the older Disney films were brought out in the cinemas for re-releases, which used to happen very regularly, um, she would always take me to see them. So, I mean, the very first film I saw in a movie theater was Cinderella yeah. um, when I was about two. And she still laughs about be, you know taking me to see Snow White and, you know, me sort of being quite horrified that she would bring me to such a movie because, you know, the queen was just that bit intense for a three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and also Bambi and being deeply upset with her and actually questioning her judgment as a parent, saying, why would you bring me to see this? I could see why after yeah. about five minutes. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. of course, it's a beautiful film, and I know exactly why she brought yeah. me to see them, because she also loved them, and she wanted to share her childhood favorites with her child. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they were... You know, but they 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 did build a love of these things for me. And then when I would have been about 10, not quite 11, that's when the Disney Channel launched. Mm-hmm. And we were one of the, you know, as soon as it was available to us, we subscribed to it. And that was a huge introductory area. Yeah. So it was just this constant, I mean, I watched other stuff as well, but it was a constant inundation for me of, of animation. And I just, I loved the craziness of it. <laughs> and animation's a kind of a, a film genre that can be passed down from generations, isn't it? Like you yeah. said, you, your mother took you to see Bambi and Cinderella because she remembered them possibly mm-hmm. from when she, she was a child they mm-hmm. first coming out. And, well, and that's, she was well, born after they came out. Was she right? Well, yeah. yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a kind of way, it's similar to me because my, one of my, my dad's favourite films is Beauty and the Beast, the mm-hmm. 1992 animated version. And, um, 91. Yeah, 91, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of introduced that to me in one of my first mm-hmm. cinema memories is, I can't remember the first time I went, but I definitely remember going to see Finding Nemo as a kid mm-hmm. and Monsters, Inc. Because mm-hmm. we'll get more into kind of generational things to do with Disney later. Because mm-hmm. it is each generation of Disney is, is important to each generation of persons, mm-hmm. really, when it comes to film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of in its def- definition of kind of each area. Because, like, you might have um, fond nostalgia for films that you saw when you were a kid that would be different to, to, to mine. Yeah, but not necessarily the animated ones. It's probably mm. more the case with Disney's live action films. Because Disney moved into live action in 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, over the years, have produced hundreds of live action films under the Disney label. Um, whereas they've only produced what fifty four animated films to date. The, 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 the like animated that. films kind of slumped after a while, didn't they? Up well, it's not that. 80s. I mean, well, they 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 do for a little while, and there 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 are various ebbs and flows in terms mm. of of Disney's animated feature production. But you know, it's it's that it's quicker and it's cheaper to produce live action films. Yeah. And that's actually part of, not the only reason, but it's part of the reason why Disney diversified in the late 40s, early 50s, and then finally in 1950 embraces live-action filmmaking. Yeah, because um, I was I was born kind of at the tail end of what they call the Renaissance era of, of Disney. I was born in 95, mm-hmm. which is the same year Toy Story came out, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the main bulk of the, the renaissance and kind of the heyday of Pixar, the uh, early days of Pixar. Mm. So that's the kind of Disney films that define my childhood in mm. ways that other people might find different. Um, are there any kind of from your childhood that were released when you were younger that you remember seeing? Well, I mean, I that were released when I was a child, absolutely I remember them. It doesn't mean I was necessarily impressed with them but I definitely remember them um, for instance The Black Cauldron yeah, uh, which is 85 and I would have been depending on what point in the year it came out 12 or 13 
Yeah. And I was a big fan of the Lloyd Alexander books, the Prydain Chronicles. Had read them all repeatedly. Um, was looking forward to the film in large part on those grounds, actually, more than because it was Disney. Um, though I, I did like Disney animation. Um, and sort of being disappointed with it both as a Disney fan and as a Lloyd Alexander fan, although there are things that I liked about it that I still like about it. It is a film that kind of splits opinion, and there's a lot of those from that era. I can think of a few off the top of my head. Uh, the Rescuers and The Rescuers Down Under, that's kind well, of that splits the, opinion. The, same. the Rescuers was more successful. In fact, it was a lot more successful. The Rescuers Down Under was an, an unqualified bomb. Mm. But... Um, there's a, a reason that it is often overlooked that contributes to its bomb status, and that is that it was up in competition against Home Alone. Right. And, you know, it just basically got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And Disney actually pulled their advertising on Rescuers Down Under. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a bit of an iffy film for them to make, because it's actually the first animated feature film um, to use the CAPS process Mm -hmm. uh which is uh basically it's using computers to ink and paint the cells yeah and they had never done this before and the first thing they did it with was a feature film and it 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 was not a good decision and i don't think anyone working on it at the time would it would disagree with that i mean they weren't really producing the short films that they could have experimented on it with at the time. Either. No, they once in a, I mean they could have though because once yeah. in a blue moon somebody would get an idea and they would produce a short. But yeah, shorts production very much had not completely disappeared, but had very much tailed off by the time we get to the sort of eighties, early nineties. But it begins to pick up later yeah. again. But a lot of our animation in that era was kind of made for TV. I mean, you mentioned Scooby-Doo. How many different versions of Scooby-Doo have there been on television since the 60s? I mean, probably as, yeah. as many <laughs> as many as Hanna-Barbera produced television shows there's been Scooby-Doo spin-offs. Yeah. Um, so the, maybe the the market wasn't there for, for, for shorts at, at the time. Well, I don't know that that's the case because I think people have... I mean, and we've shown this again and again. In fact, there's been a book just published very recently that contributes very well to this argument that um, people have always loved these animated shorts and when mm-hmm. production of them begins to, to taper off and then in some cases completely cease depending on the studio it isn't anything at all to do with the film's popularity or lack thereof um, and in fact we have we have a lot of evidence that that was often the film that brought people to the cinema it wasn't necessarily the feature film. It was they wanted to see the latest Bugs Bunny short. They wanted to see the latest Tom and Jerry short, the latest Donald Duck short, the latest whatever. And they'd stay and they'd watch the feature. They'd watch the newsreels. They'd watch whatever else was part of the program. But that was what really brought them through the door in many cases, at least of that particular cinema or on that particular day. Yeah. The, the only company I can really think that still makes shots with any particular, um, I can't think of the word regularity. regularity, that's the one, is Pixar. Is they, they tend to put short films before some of their features. Disney is too. They're producing shorts that go ahead of their features, and I think they, you know, and Pixar kind of helped to bring that back, but Disney has embraced it again. Um, uh, Universal Animation mm. has started to bring some of that back and uh, as extras, on the short, on the DVDs as well yeah. as you know, because um, I remember um, buying the Minion film mm-hmm. for my partner, and there being three mini mo- being advertised on the box as three mini movies on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember going to see Incredibles two last year, and the the short film I, I, I don't I think it's, it's Bow the the one about the Chinese mm-hmm. lady and the dumpling and mm-hmm. the son, mm-hmm. and enjoying that. I think that won the Academy Award. It, yeah, it for did for best short. short yeah. So, it's always nice to see that because Pixar are one of the leading creative forces of of, of animation in film. Yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. They they certainly did change a lot of aspects of the animation landscape. I mean, how we pr- produce, how animation is produced now, is 
unquestionably different mm. from how it was produced the, before they were the, Toy Story. They were the first company to make a completely computer-generated animated film, weren't they? Um, yes, yeah. depending on... Because, as I said earlier, um, Caps, yeah, which is used for Rescuers Down Under in 92? Yeah, I think 92. Um, is Or is it 90? Anyway... It, you know, as I say, CAPS is a computer animated system for inking and painting on the computer. And that's used throughout the film, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still, I think, underlying that the basic traditional process. Yeah. Um, Do you have any concerns in the modern times of Disney's seeming monopoly over the film industry and animation not at all because I would say that they had far less of a monopoly over animation than they ever have in the past Um, they were one of the few studios producing animated feature films throughout you know the sort of history of American animated feature production and they produced the first American one that we know of Um, it's not the first animated Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is not the first ever animated feature film but it's it's often remembered that way for all kinds of reasons um how widely it's released that it's in sound and in color you know that it comes from a major name because disney was by 1937 absolutely a huge name within animation um but it's it's and you'd get the odd you know flesher animated feature film there mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the 1940s or 1939 for Gulliver's Travels um, later on in the 60s and 70s you'd get the occasional animated feature film coming from uh, various people you know so films like Yellow Submarine yeah. um, like the um, Lord of the Rings version done by Ralph mm-hmm. Bakshi that uh, what's his face stole everything from for those horrible live action films that's his name um, some other sort of sort of predominantly animated films like um, a, oh, I can't remember what the exact name of it was but it's about Raggedy Ann and Andy and it's from the 1970s mm-hmm. I was a fan of it it was I was four or five I think when it came out and I quite I quite liked it um, and had a doll from it um, you know, random ones here and there, and particularly when you get to the six, late 60s and 70s, you start to see animated features being made specifically for adults mm-hmm. as well as for children, and things like, for instance, um, Fritz the Cat, uh, which is an X-rated animated film from 1972. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, once Pixar in particular, and again, they're not the only ones because... We, we do start to see in the mid-90s uh, DreamWorks SKG mm-hmm. coming along and, and starting to get into animation, animated features in a big way. Um, Pixar, of course, who were independent and were simply sort of partnering up with Disney mm-hmm. uh, before being incorporated later by Disney. Um, and it's since then that we've seen, you know, Blue Sky Studios come along mm. that we've seen uh, Universal Animation particularly via the Minions films really take off um, I'm drawing a blank but a few other studios who have come along since then and entered into this this field that is becoming increasingly crowded mm. um, though not necessarily in a bad way you know yeah. it, it's greater variety it's, it's you know different looks and things like that different stories and such uh, but no, Disney is a player in a, a large market now. And in fact, spend, I would argue, the late 90s, early 2000s playing catch-up. Yeah. And in a way, the field of animation, especially for television, has broadened over the past few years, especially with the coming out of Netflix and Amazon Prime. And you have shows like BoJack Horseman and Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. which have come along as adult mm-hmm. animations. And for well, it's been kind of a very, very popular popular shows yeah um i mean the adult swim thing that is now just beginning in in this country has been around in in the u.s on cartoon network for quite a while the uk has a habit of catching up with america when it comes to release dates for things yeah Yeah. better late than never i suppose but um i think in addition to and i think prior to netflix and all which obviously do have animated series being done for them 
Um, there have also just particularly as television becomes digital, mm-hmm. um, you get more and more and more channels, and that proliferation of channels means you can start to devote an entire channel to animation. Cartoon Network may have been one of the first, but you know this is where we even start to see you know Disney Channel be splits into several channels. Cartoon mm-hmm. Network splits into several different channels. Um, channels can be come along that can be devoted entirely to very very young children to slightly older children and really differentiate their markets and produce a great deal of animation to go along with those some of which are you know i'm sure you're familiar with some of these very small child targeted and even a few infant targeted animated series on channels for instance in this country like cbb's yeah um I've got uh, two goddaughters who are pretty much obsessed with Peppa Pig. Yeah. So, which is one such animation. Yeah, and um, well, I was a big fan of Timmy Time. Still am. Timmy Time. <laughs> it's a brilliant show. <laughs> when it was on, I considered it to be one of the best British television shows on. Really? I, Absolutely. I can't, remember, I can't remember Timmy Time. Well, is that a more modern show? Or what was that? It's a spin-off of Shaun the Sheep. Oh and right, he's yeah. Timmy's yeah. Uh, nephew, or Timmy is, is Sean's, Sean's nephew. nephew, and um, this is basically he's sent off to a, a multi-species uh, nursery school daycare oh, right. type thing, and has various you know clashes and lessons and adventures and things. But they are very very funny and they're very very clever, and often will bring in some quite meta narrative um, references and things like that, and just are they've got that sort of trademark classic Ardman yeah. sense of humour. So of course, Shaun the Sheep was a spin-off in its own right from, from, from Wallace, Wallace and Gromit, Gromit yeah. which is a, another particular favourite of mine from, from my childhood. Yeah. Um, I remember going to see Wallace and Gromit and the Castle of the Wear Rabbit at the cinema and really enjoying that. Mm-hmm. Still enjoy it now. This is, that's, that's the thing, the thing with animation is it's one of the few genres that kind of doesn't age as much as the, the rest of the genres. Exactly. I mean... There, there are things about you know these films that if you if you know what you're looking at, if you're familiar with sort of art history, popular culture, aesthetics, things mm-hmm. like that, you can look at something and go, oh yeah, the way that's drawn or the the color palette used or whatever that's from this particular era. But at the same time, yeah, they are ageless. They are timeless in so many respects, and because we have carried with us a fondness for so many of these films as, as a larger sort of culture. Mm-hmm. We, you know, as I said, you know, my mother was wanting me to watch these because she loved them as a child. Yeah. You, you're talking about you know, your parents doing the same. Um, lots of people do this. And so we all grow up watching old and new animation. Yeah. And because it's often set in particularly the feature films, in these kind of fantasies, fantasy worlds, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, for instance, you know, it's this kind of quasi-medieval setting, you know. Um, How is that possibly going to date? Yeah. You know, Bambi, well, it's about, you know, animals in the forest. Mm -hmm. How could that possibly date as such? And so it always does feel fresh in the way that live action can't. Because even when, when we're talking about, say, an older period film, you know, they were never accurate depictions of the past. No. Even in terms of hair and clothing. There was always still the markers of the fashions of the time in which they're made. And certainly in the more modern set ones, you know, people's hair and clothing instantly dated them. Mm-hmm. And that's part of their charm, but you you're very aware. You know, it's signaling. It's an old film because of these things. Not intentionally signaling yeah. it, but signaling it nonetheless. Whereas I think we have a lot less of that with animation. If if you take Snow White as the kind of example, if you were to look at a, a live action film from 1938, 1938 is that right? 37, 37. it's premier, 38 general release. Anyway, if you took a, a live action film from 1937, it wouldn't look half as good as Snow White still does now. Well, it would look, it, it might look just as good, but it would definitely look like it was, you know, 1937, yeah. 38. 
Um, just looking at my shelf, thinking of, of films, for instance, and Bringing Up Baby is a film from that period that is... Gone with the Winds. Yeah, or... from 39, Wizard of Oz from 39. Um, they are, you know, they're, they're classic, still-beloved films from this period. That Bringing Up Baby is more popular now than it was in its day. But um, it's, you know, the hair, again, the hair, the clothing... The, the film stock, mm-hmm. all of that says old movie. Old film, yeah. Whereas a, a well-restored animated film from 1937 can look just the same as a, a well-restored animated film from the 1990s. Definitely. Um, so this is a, the next conversation topic I wanted to cover is probably kind of the most meaty and more interesting points. Is... Um, do you think animation is more respected as an art form now than it has been? And is it as respected as it should be? I think in some ways it's kind of, sort of, a bit more respected now. Um, I think there is a bit more recognition of the potential and the scope of the animation industry I think that there's a greater willingness to recognize the important cultural role that some animated films have played not animation in general but Mm -hmm. certain specific films Um, we do have this kind of tacit acknowledgement that animation should be recognized for its achievements via things like the best animated feature film yeah. and best animated short categories in the Oscars. Though at the same time, I have, since the beginning, since that was announced, felt like that in, in many ways just serves to help further ghettoize yeah. animation. And I've always felt very uncomfortable about those, for all that I am at least kind of... I am still glad to see it at least yeah. being mentioned by the Oscars. Um but at this, and I think too, you know, animation studies as an academic discipline. Um, I don't know whether it's helped that or not, but it certainly hasn't hurt. And certainly within the academy, the study of animation um, that has become more respected. Mm-hmm. Um, just over the course of my career, because. Um, <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm one of the first people to devote their entire career to this. And now, you know, I mean, we're sitting here in my office and, you know, I've got all these books here on my shelf. (laughs) Shelf after shelf of books on animation, and I don't have them all. Once upon a time, when I first started my PhD, which would have been in 97, I think I probably did have every academic book published on animation, and they took up about a foot and a half of shelf space. If if you could see the office we're currently sat sitting in, it's like a a cornucopia, a kind of shrine to everything animation. In fact, there's there's, um, there's there's so many books that there's not enough room for them on all the shelves. Some of them sat on sat in front of us right now. <laughs> yeah, I'd, the shelves are a bit rickety and old. I'd be afraid to put these really big books on the shelf. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's there is no way to afford. To yeah. keep up, even if I had a mansion of bookshelves to put them on, which I suppose if I had a mansion of bookshelves to put them on, I'd have the funds to actually go out and buy all the books. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 grown a great deal, and it's also in its own way become much more established and respected by various institutions, such as the Society for Animation Studies. Mm-hmm. It has its own animate or own animation specific academic journal. Um, I mean, animation as a discipline, I mean, um, it is, and it, it, you know, when I, well, when I started my PhD, and I did my PhD in history at UCL, um, we were expected to apply for funding for materials. You know, this was a normal thing to do, and my supervisor, because I was the first person to do a film studies uh, PhD there, um, or at least in the, the history department, and my supervisor, who's quite canny about the political side of these sorts of things, was like, you need to apply for that. You need 
a TV and VCR. You need tapes of the various films that you're going to look at. That's going to cost several hundred pounds for you to acquire all of that. Apply for the funding. And not only did I not get the funding, but I later heard through the grapevine that one of the, the older professors in the department, upon reviewing my application for funding, went, <laughs> she want money for popcorn as well. And it's, you know, and then even a few years later, um, around the time that I published my first book, um, a colleague at uh, the department that I was in, which was not at Hull, it was elsewhere, um, said something in a sort of group meeting where this is meant to be about encouraging, you know, these sort of silly things that reads that Anna, that um, universities like to do to make themselves feel like they're actually encouraging research when they're in fact impeding it. Um, and they actually say in, or he actually says to me, you know, well, you, you've done enough now, I think, on animation. There must be, there must be other stuff that you can study now. I mean, you've basically covered it all, haven't you? What else can there be to say? And I kind of looked at him because he was actually specializing in Irish cinema. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and said, well, there's, there are more animated films than there are Irish films. Have you finished studying Irish cinema now? Which he just found, I think he was a bit nonplussed by that. And, you know, and I don't, I genuinely don't think he meant to be disrespectful. I think he genuinely believed that I had just gone far too niche and exhausted the topic. Mm -hmm. And obviously I haven't, <laughs> you know. Oh. It just it continues and it continues and it continues. And there are so many things that, thanks to animation scholarship, we've been able to rewrite the history of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things like Technicolor. So many people don't realize that it's actually Disney who shaped how full Technicolor was, early, was, was used because mm -hmm. it's seen as this live action thing. And it's like, well, how do you think the animated films became color? They became color via Technicolor. And, you know, Disney was the first successful user of it. The very first commercially released film in cinemas in Technicolor was the Disney cartoon Flowers and Trees in 1932. They absolutely establish how we still, in some respects, use Technicolor. And things like that are just forgotten. Storyboarding, which is such a common technique now in a lot of feature film production, that is believed to go back to the production of Steamboat Willie. Hmm. You know, where basically artists communicate and think best by drawing little sketches. Yeah. And they piece those sketches together into a, a storyboard. And the way that Disney storyboarded films in this period was absolutely unique. And it's only, it spreads because people either come to work at Disney briefly and then take it back with them as a tool when they return to their home studios or they leave Disney for one reason or another to go work permanently elsewhere and bring this technique with them. And as it's, you know, as other people see this person doing it, go, oh, wow, that's really useful. I'm going to try that. But, you know, there are so many things that are just forgotten. Because even once film studies comes along, and film studies at first means live action film studies, yeah. it has to establish its right to exist. But even after that it does, it's still a number of decades before animation studies manage to establish its right to exist. And I think we've done that now. Mm -hmm. But sometimes some of the more fuddy-duddy types... Yeah, still struggle, you know, and they they think it's just watching cartoons. <laughs> what really sticks in my craw personally is is you, you mentioned the the Academy Awards mm. and the fact that they kind of made best animated features a kind of console. It feels like a consolation prize, like yeah. animated films aren't good enough to be nominated for best picture when yeah. some of them absolutely are good enough to be nominated for best picture. And and yeah, and are robbed of not being because yeah. it's only been what twice three times three times I think I yeah. looked it up the other day I can't Beauty and the Beast was the first Toy Story 3 and Toy yeah I thought it was Toy Story 2 I did look it up the other day but I can't remember what it is yeah. <laughs> we'll look it up now <laughs> yeah um, but it's um, you know it's still 
Yeah. The Academy Awards have been awarding films since 1927, 28. Yeah. Uh, which the first film won two years in a row. Wings. Really? Yeah. I don't know why, but Wings won Best Picture two consecutive years. Um, and it says a lot that there's even one live-action film that wins twice and there, no animated film. There were several animated films I can think of off the top of my head that I would nominate for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lion King being one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coco from last la- last year, which I thought was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, even The Little Mermaid, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not to mention Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yeah. <laughs> which does get a special Oscar. Yeah. And I, I have to confess, because I've seen it couple of times now in person a really cool oscar a big one and seven little ones but yeah it's not given a competitive oscar and that actually really upset walt disney yeah you know because he looks at what you know he looked at what his studio had done what all these people working with him had done and working for him had done and you know it it is kind of you know second prize in a beauty contest, collect $10, like something out of Monopoly. You know, it's not a proper prize. But yeah, uh, you were right. It is um, Toy Story 3 in 2010, and then um, Up. Up, yeah. Yeah, in 2000. Wait a minute. 2008? Nine. Uh, Nine. Animated films are nominated. So, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, Up. Toy Story 3. Yeah. 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 Because even Toy Story 3, I, I would have probably nominated the first two Toy Stories as well for Best Picture. Yeah, I mean, certainly best, I think Toy Story definitely deserves some kind of recognition because it absolutely does break ground, break new ground in terms of how animation looks, how animation is approached. But um, I do think Toy Story 2 is better. Yeah. Um, For all that, I think Toy Story is a great film. I think Toy Story 2 is um, better. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's probably the better of the three, yeah. mm-hmm. Toy Story 2. The, even the animated feature Oscar only came in 2001 or two. For Shrek. Shrek was the first one, mm-hmm. either way. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the fact that Toy Story and Toy Story 2 got no recognition. And it, it does yeah. feel like, as you say, that there's some kind of old fuddy-duddies at the top of the Oscars who just don't recognise animated features as being as important as live action. Yeah, and it's... I don't... I was going to say, I don't know why that animation has always been seen as kind of secondary, if not tertiary, to live action. Um, But my guess is that it, it, it has... For all that early cinematic animation... Um, from its very beginnings right up through, um, well, right through the present day, the majority of it is aimed at a mixed audience, at a general audience, at a family audience, depending on the period that we're talking about, and only very rarely specifically at a child audience. Mm-hmm. I think because in so many ways through subject matter and things, it, it has linked itself to childhood. Mm-hmm. That and for all kinds of, of complicated reasons, which would be a five-hour podcast in yeah. and of itself. So, do, do, do you um, think it's... But I think it's I think it becomes associated with childhood, mm-hmm. associated with children, and the sad fact is that to a lot of people, anything produced for children mm-hmm. in any form of media, and no matter how good that production is, yeah. it must somehow be lesser. Yeah, and animation was always um the red-headed stepchild mm-hmm. and still is in some ways of of the film industry as a whole it, even when it's not specifically made for children animation sometimes still has this tag of being a child's thing yeah. doesn't it because yeah. i've even got some friends who you know they don't they don't think disney films are worth watching because they think they're for kids when essentially there is things in disney films that appeals to everyone and things that children wouldn't understand yeah you know um, and and not just Disney. You know, you see this with yeah. other studios. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of a film like Up, mm-hmm. or a film like Inside Out. And I mean, Inside Out, my God, Up as well. That first few minutes. I mean, I've, yeah. I've never cried 15 minutes into a film before. <laughs> you know, and it was. I, I have to wonder how much a child would be able to yeah. understand and take away why. 
that is you know that that sort of the, the backstory for for up and yeah. you know his his love story with his wife a small child couldn't understand that you know you have to be an adult for that to have full emotional resonance because you by that stage you're old enough to understand love and attraction and romantic love in particular you're able to understand death mm-hmm. and the impact or at least the impact that death has i don't know that anyone understands no. death but you know what i mean you you've experienced the loss of others by the time most of us by the time we get to adulthood and a small child hasn't and even in terms of sort of developmental stages they mm-hmm. haven't yet reached the ability to 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 watch that and get the full nuance and it doesn't mean they don't get anything out of it mm-hmm. but you know i mean one of the things that i often do and it's done in a a very small sample unscientific way mm-hmm. but i often will talk to kids um you know cuz i've i have a lot of children in my life mm-hmm. and you know We'll talk to them about, you know, how, what did you think of this? What, you know, why did you like this? That kind of thing. And the answers they give are always interesting and always, you know, important and, and can be very astute. Mm-hmm. But they do understand things differently. And particularly for in an emotional content, they understand them differently. In, in some ways, it's a good teaching tool isn't it especially with films like Up and Inside Out because it's teaching it's showing them how people deal with emotions and how they can use that in their everyday lives through an entertaining medium it is except that um, only part of that is learned in the way that you learn information Um, part of it in fact a large part of it does come from cognitive development brain development Mm -hmm which goes through multiple stages from, from birth onward. And usually it's, it's cited that it's around the age of 25 that the human brain has finished its development, <laughs> at which point I guess it begins its decline, <laughs> slow so and inevitably. We're, we're, according to that, I've got another year before my brain starts to decline. Yeah, you're, so. you're, you're good. I, I'm <laughs> past that point and God knows it's going. <laughs> But, um, you know, so you, you go through different stages of learning to, you know, understand yourself as an individual. And I don't mean in a kind of deep-seated way. I mean learning that you are not an offshoot of your mother's body. Yeah. You know, learning that you are a distinct individual in your own right. Learning who that, that person in the mirror is, you know, that that's you. Um, in fact, it's actually called the mirror phase. <laughs> learning, you know learning that things aren't necessarily black or white but that there's gray in between mm-hmm. you know these are actually developmental stages that your brain becomes capable of grasping um which is actually one of the themes in up yeah. or not in up in inside out so. and um you know the, the child at the center of it she's not ready to understand the nuance of her memories until later you know, until she, you know, and she's hitting that age, and the reason she's part of the reason she's depressed and that she's she's scared and upset isn't just that her family has moved to a new place, but that she's actually old enough for that to start to sink in. Yeah, and the, I think Inside Out's got a lot of important lessons in it as well, mm-hmm. as especially when it comes to the sadness mm-hmm. character. Yeah, in, in, and that sadness isn't necessarily a bad yeah, thing. Exactly, and the. In a lot of ways, people need sadness, a little bit of sadness to put things into perspective in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And, um, I mean, r- really, we can only scratch the surface on animation oh, yeah. within an hour. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it's had a very kind of up and down history, a lot of yeah. kind of checkered incidents. But in a lot of ways, it's a force for positive oh, yeah. things in childhood and in adulthood. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think these films... They, they clearly they're hugely meaningful to, to so many of us, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, even if I if I didn't teach animation history and I didn't teach, you know, the the sort of you know the aesthetics and, and all of that stuff, I probably still have most of the the DVDs yeah. and Blu-rays and all that I've got. I'd still watch this stuff. I'd still love it. I'd still be you know running off to a Disney park every chance <laughs> I got. I'd you know, it's just that I'm lucky enough to have found a way to 
turn it into a career. So, yeah, make a living from it. Yeah. I, I suppose, in a way, even away from being films, especially in the older ones, you have to appreciate the kind of art art on show, in the, especially oh, yeah. in the early Disney films. Bambi, for instance, is oh yeah, striking my works of art in that. Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 an absolutely breathtakingly beautiful film in some places. Especially when you consider it all has to be hand painted as well mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, and painstakingly. Yeah. You know, and and Bambi is a, a particularly interesting film in the way that it its look comes about because it's actually heavily influenced by a single artist and uh, Tyrus Wong. Tyrus Wong, yeah. and we very rarely get that with animated feature films. Um, one of the few others that I can think of at Disney, anyway, would be uh, Lilo and Stitch, mm-hmm. which is very much um, influenced by uh, I think it's Chris Sanders or Saunders, who. Um, is the one who he basically because I've seen him talk about this in interviews he said you know he wanted that slightly rounded look he said it was almost like he'd stuck a straw in everything and kind of you know blown it up a bit so that it was just rounded and expanded and it's very unusual for them to do that but I think particularly with with Bambi you know there's there's this there's this willingness I think to let this film be beautiful and lyrical and you know it's it's you know, though they wouldn't have referred to it quite this way at that stage. It is very much about you know the the circle of life. You know yeah. that there is no beginning or end, just new generations coming along to carry on the story. And they, because there is a timelessness to that, I think they wanted this slightly you know erythral quality, this this timeless quality to the look of the film. We forget. You know, because Bambi is a 1942 film, we forget how experimental it is. Yeah, and uh, we briefly touched on Tyrus Wong there. Mm. If, if any listeners haven't haven't ever heard of Tyrus Wong, I would highly recommend seeking out his story. He's a yeah. very interesting man. But in in a lot of ways, the especially the early Disney animations, I find a lot of films fall into one or two categories. They're either made because it's someone someone would like us to see and that it's made out of passion and love mm-hmm. and the other type of films is ones that people would make because they want to make a lot of money <laughs> and a lot of Disney films fall into the former category especially the early ones yeah they're made as a labor of love and passion and you can see that on screen oh yeah absolutely I mean frankly I think that's true of the vast majority of them I can't think of any that were purely made for the money no um, there was always someone behind these films going you know we, we we need to tell this story and you'll often find particularly with the more recent films that these are based on stories that were picked up toyed with thought about couldn't quite figure out how they wanted to do it yeah. shelved it then another generation comes along pulls it off the shelf goes oh wow starts working on it some more can't quite crack it puts it back and then finally you know, and this is certainly the case with Frozen. Frozen. The yeah. Snow Queen gets picked up and put down at least a couple of times before they finally figure out how they want to tell this story. And of course, I mean, I, I have no problem with them changing the name from the Snow Queen to the, to Frozen mm-hmm. because it really is very far removed from the sort of traditional versions mm-hmm. of the Snow Queen. But um, you know, it, it took them a long time. Um, when when Walt Disney is deciding to do his first feature film and deciding what story, he actually initially does toy with and then shelve Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan both. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also read different places that an early story idea that's thought about and ultimately put aside is The Little Mermaid. Yeah, you know, so these sto- these you know it's it's someone going. Let's tell that story, and and it finally being the right time to take that and do what they need to do with it to make it work. Because um, I think stories, with stories, I think timing is everything. You know, yeah. you we tell ourselves stories to understand our, ourselves, to understand our world, and the wrong story at the wrong time just won't work. The, I think the ta- the timing of Frozen and how it exploded. I, th- I think it's mm-hmm. actually the third highest grossing film of all time and the highest grossing animated film of all time and I believe the highest grossing film directed by a woman yeah. of all time it made something close to two billion dollars is that all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean the highest grossing one is Avatar which made I think two and a half billion so it, it just, I don't know 
I'm not that was basically an animated film, just not a very good one. Yeah. Basically just Smurfs. Big Smurfs. Yes. <laughs> Alien Smurfs. <laughs> and and then they're making false equals out of it for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> Which I, I can't a, grasp. And a section of um, Disney's Animal Kingdom Park at Disney World. Oh, really? I I, I didn't know about, about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit controversial, but yeah. And then even though it's still... the It's got longevity as well. It's about five years since it's released now. And... Even now, Frozen. Frozen. Yeah, yeah. it was twenty thirteen in, in the US, late twenty thirteen, Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. Because even now, my eldest goddaughter is still still mm. obsessed over Elsa and let let it go. And I, yeah. I, I'm assuming it'll all start again later this year when Frozen this, Two comes out. I was just gonna say exactly the same thing. Yeah, because it's uh, I don't know about here, but I know in the US it's due out in at this stage, just fall of twenty nineteen. That usually means Thanksgiving weekend, which, for the record, Thanksgiving in the U.S. is always the fourth Thursday of November. Yeah, you... It's usually released in the, the later ones are Ameri- uh, released in late November in America and sometimes New Year over here. February, March, yeah. I think, was when Frozen was, came out here, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, and Coco was the same. That was released in the U.S. in late November. Wreck-It Ralph was the R- same. Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we kind of get certain films earlier like we, we get star wars a day earlier over yeah. here and i can remember so. i mean for what november december January, four months is nothing compared to because i can certainly remember when i first moved to the uk uh films taking a year and and, yeah. it, and being sort of released at random times you know like more christmas themed movies coming out sort of late summer and thinking yeah if you're going to leave it that long, why not just leave it a little bit longer and bring it out at Christmas time? I'm, I'm not particularly sure why they wait to release it over here. Unless yeah. they're making some kind of region-specific changes. Not that well, I've noticed. sometimes they are. The BBFC has, to this day, will occasionally edit uh, Hollywood films to change, to remove scenes, things like that, and mm. definitely vet things very carefully. So... Um, that may be part of it, but I, I think it is just also sort of larger global release patterns. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you go on a site like IMDb and look at the lists of, of when films come out. Yeah. And sometimes it feels incredibly random as to yeah. why it comes out here at this date and there at another date. Like the, there's a, a film that I've been looking forward to for a few, well, almost a year now. That's uh, It's called Eighth Grade. It's a film directed by both Ben and the comedian. Mm-hmm. That came out in America last August and it still hasn't come out here. Oh right! Yeah, okay. he has, has, hasn't even got a distributor in the UK yet. Right, that's yeah. that's very interesting. It is, yeah. yeah, is it is it an indie? Yeah, it's an indie film. Okay, um, it was the same with my favorite film of last year was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, mm. and that was I think five months after it was released in America, it finally came over right. here. And yeah. sometimes I, I mean, there are a lot of films that I'll think, you know, oh, I'd, love, I'd really like to see that, and then I just completely miss it because yeah. it comes and goes too quickly or doesn't quite make it up to where we are yeah because oh, that, that's another thing is cinemas don't sometimes don't show the smaller films which is a shame yeah because yeah. they're often the more interesting ones well yeah i mean not not necessarily i can think of some big films that are incredibly interesting depending oh, on yeah. how, what you mean by interesting but yeah i mean it is a shame that sometimes the 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 less sort of big studio big everything films don't make it out as far, even when they're films people would probably love. Yeah. yeah. So we'll kind of come into the end of our chat on animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining me again, Amy. Is there anything you'd like to to promote? Why you've got as any books, and I know that you've got a few books available <laughs> on our reading list. I'd, yes, yes. Um, I do. Um, I do have several books. Um, so. I've got my first book, which is Good Girls and Wicked Witches, Women in Disney's Animated Features. Uh, It has a brother, Handsome Heroes and Vile Villains, Men in Disney's Animated Features, and those are about human characters in in the feature films. And uh, I've got a book coming out later this year that's a a book I've edited that came out of a conference I ran on uh, Disney a few years ago, and it's called Discussing Disney. And... um, I don't know the exact date that it will be out, but mm-hmm. I think summer this year. Yeah. The um, the book on females in Disney couldn't be more apropos with today. We're, we're mm. recording on in, in International Women's Day. This is going mm. up on Monday, but it is International <laughs> Women's Day. So to, to celebrate, why not buy yourself a copy of Amy's book? 
<laughs> so I'm um, coming for Fandy on Twitter as well. Not sure. Uh, yes, I I am on Twitter. I, sometimes I forget that I'm on Twitter and I don't go on Twitter very often, but I am on there. Uh, I think my thingy mabob is at Doctor Amy M Davis. And uh, you can find all my work at mrpinionatedweb.com and find me on Twitter at Nathan Ken Major and Mr Opinion Critic. That's both my Twitter handles because I have two. I'm special like that. Wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> one for my film related work, one for my personal work. <laughs> so thanks once again for joining me, Dr. Davis. Thank you very it's much. It's been a pleasure. And um, thank you for listening, and I shall talk to you again soon. Bye bye. <laughs>